Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown here in Langley, British Columbia, and at his home in Vancouver is my good friend Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Mike. How are you, everybody? We're doing a bit of a different show format today, so you won't hear ads in the middle of the show for reasons that you will understand, I'm sure, as the show flows. And Matthew, you say you're not going to cut in as much. No, I think um, there's a lot that needs to be covered in this episode, and we're going to talk a lot about many victims to tell their story a little bit. And and, and I think this is, I know this story is such a big part of, of our history here in Canada mm-hmm. that I just feel like um, the facts just need the breathing space um, from what you've written, if you know right. what I mean. Yeah. And I mean, anyone who's uh, listening who's our age or older and is Canadian, uh, maybe maybe around the world, but... Uh, specifically Canadian. I think only we understand how absolutely massive this was and how it changed Canada. Right. So yeah, it's a it's a big story. Okay, let's move on. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts.
On December 6, 1989, a tragic and profound event shook Canada and had a lasting impact. That evening, a gunman entered the École Polytechnique in Montreal, an engineering school aff affiliated with the University of Montreal. The act of violence that followed was specifically targeted against women, marking it as a horrific instance of gender-based violence. The attacker, motivated by his hatred for feminists, whom he blamed for his personal and professional failures, embarked on a rampage through the school. The consequences were devastating. In less than 20 minutes, 14 young women lost their lives. They were Anne-Marie Edward, Sonia Pelletier, Jean-Vivre Bergeron, Marise Leclerc, Barbara Dagnol, Maud Havirnik, Michel Richard, Anne-Marie LeMay, Annie Turcotte, Helene Colgan, Natalie Croteau, Annie Saint Arnaud, Marise Languinière, and Barbara Kluznik Widejevitz. Ten more women and four men were injured before the cowardly gunman ended his own life. The event, later known as the École Polytechnique Massacre, or the Montreal Massacre, left a deep scar on Canadian society. It led to increased awareness and action against gender-based violence, prompting changes in gun control laws and police procedures. The date, December 6, was subsequently declared the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women in Canada, serving as a somber reminder of the need to combat gender-based violence and discrimination. This is Dark Poutine Episode 296, Extreme Misogyny, The Montreal Massacre. Since the outset of Dark Poutine, we've been planning an episode on the topic we're about to cover, and we want to ensure that we do it sensitively and with the utmost care, as we try to do all our episodes. In this episode specifically, we reflect on one of Canada's darkest moments. We revisit the haunting legacy of the École Polytechnique Massacre, a poignant reminder of the ongoing struggle against gender-based violence. We will do our best to minimize focus on the offender and have chosen not to name him. On the fateful day of December 6, 1989, Canada was jolted by this tragedy that would forever alter its discourse on women's rights and safety. As we approach yet another anniversary of this harrowing event, we delve into how the shadows of that day continue to influence our society, policies, and collective consciousness. In 1989, Canada experienced several significant events that shaped its political, social, and cultural landscape. On January 1st, the Canadian-American Free Trade Agreement came into effect, marking a new era in North American trade relations. This was followed by the resignation of Newfoundland Premier Brian Peckford on January 21st and a cabinet shuffle by Prime Minister Brian Mulroney on January 30th. Notably, on March 1st, the Canadian Space Agency was established, signifying Canada's commitment to space exploration and technology. In the realm of politics and social issues, Deborah Gray won a by-election on March 13th to become the first member of Parliament for the Reform Party, and the murder of LGBT activist Joe Rose in Montreal on March 19th highlighted ongoing social challenges. We are planning a future episode on Joe Rose. In sports, 
The Calgary Flames won the Stanley Cup Finals on May 25th, and the Sky Dome, now Rogers Centre, in Toronto, was opened on June 3rd. CBC News World, a cable television network, was launched on July 31st, enhancing the Canadian media landscape. The Quebec general election on September 25th resulted in a large Liberal majority, and on December 2nd, Audrey McLaughlin was elected the first female major party leader in Canadian history, heading the NDP. But what occurred at École Polytechnique on December 6th became the most memorable of all events in Canada in 1989. According to their website, Polytechnique Montreal is a flagship of engineering in Quebec and is also one of Canada's leading engineering, educational, and research institutions. Since its establishment in 1873, Polytechnic Montreal has trained nearly 50,000 engineers, specialists, and researchers. Polytechnic is a key player in Quebec's engineering and innovation sector, in addition to being a partner of choice for a number of innovative businesses in Quebec, elsewhere in Canada, and all over the world. In 1989, École Polytechnique in Montreal stood as a prominent and respected institution renowned for its academic excellence, particularly in the engineering field. As an affiliate of the University of Montreal, it was one of Canada's leading engineering schools attracting diverse students from across the country and beyond. The school's environment reflected the broader technological and educational advancements of the late 1980s with a growing emphasis on research and innovation. According to the engineerscanada.ca site, quote, Today women make up more than half of the Canadian population, but are significantly underrepresented in engineering education and in the engineering profession. Over the past decades, the number of women enrolled in post-secondary engineering programs has risen, as has the number of women in the engineering profession. Yet, despite steady increases in the representation of women, men still vastly outnumber women in engineering, end quote. In a 2020 report by the same organization, in 2019, the number of female members in the engineering field reached 42,305, accounting for 13.9% of the overall national membership. This marks a rise from the 13.5% representation seen in 2018, between these two years, there was a growth of 1,781 in the number of women who were members of the engineering profession. So there's still a long way to go before there is gender parity in engineering. In 1989, the representation of women in engineering fields in Canada, specifically in civil, mechanical, electrical, and chemical engineering, was approximately 5.5%, according to StatsCan. Despite its prestige and progressiveness in many areas, the École Polytechnique in 1989 also mirrored some of the societal challenges of the time, particularly concerning gender representation in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields. The gender disparity was a point of both discussion and contention, reflecting on the broader societal debates about gender equality and women's roles in the professional and academic spheres. The tragedy that struck the institution on December 6, 1989, brought these issues into sharp focus, highlighting the urgent need for societal change regarding gender-based violence and equality. Classes at the school, with an enrollment of around 5,000, were wrapping up for the semester. Though the afternoon was chilly and damp, many students were in high spirits as they looked forward to their Christmas break 
to take a well-earned breather before returning to class in 1990 and a new decade. Situated on the northern side of Mount Royal, it was Canada's largest engineering school at the time. The school's facilities, including classrooms and offices, were in a six-story beige brick building. People later recalled first seeing the gunman at the school on that afternoon in the room of the school registrar on the first floor sometime between 4 and 4.20 p.m. He sat on the bench in the room's entrance, close to the door. His presence was notable, as in this spot he was obstructing the entrance to the department, a place frequented by a high volume of student traffic. The way he was seated made it challenging for others to get into the room. Repeatedly, he was observed rummaging in a green plastic bag beside him, seeming to make sure he was concealing its contents. He was dressed unremarkably in a pair of blue jeans and wearing a pair of Kodiak boots and a hat. He didn't say a word or interact with anyone around him. Similarly, no students engaged him in conversation. An employee at the counter inquired if he needed assistance. The man did not reply, answering the question with only a blank look, but not making eye contact. Eventually, he simply got up and left. He was spotted again at 4.45 p.m. in the corridor on the third floor. He had propped himself against a wall, clutching that black plastic bag containing a lengthy item and a smaller white plastic bag. The next time he was spotted was at 5.10 p.m., in a corridor on the second floor as he moved toward a classroom, C230.4. Moments later, when he burst through the unlocked door to the classroom, he had his rifle, a Sturm Ruger brand Mini-14 model 223 caliber with a 30-round magazine attached in his hands. Professors Yvonne Bouchard and Adrienne Serna, who were used to students arriving late, didn't even notice the gunman initially. The gunman approached a student giving a presentation at the front of the room, yelling in French, Everyone stop everything. He raised his rifle, pointing it toward the ceiling, and fired a single shot to get everyone's attention. He then said ominously, quote, Separate, the girls on the left and the guys on the right, end quote. Initially, there was no response to his command. He then repeated his directive more sternly, causing the students to split up, though in their unease, the males and females inadvertently grouped together. Once separated, he instructed the men to leave and the women to stay. He said, quote, Okay, the guys leave, the girls stay there, end quote. He pointed toward the door on the right side of the room for the male students and to the left corner of the room for the females. Mistaking this for a prank and believing the gun was loaded with blanks, the students didn't really react with alarm. Meanwhile, the gunman approached the nine girls huddled at the back with no way out. He questioned them about their understanding of their situation. He asked, quote, Do you know why you're there? End quote. One of the young women, Natalie Provost, answered, No, to which the gunman replied, I am fighting feminism. Natalie Provost then added, We're not feminists. I have never fought against men. The gunman answered the young woman's statement by opening fire on the group of nine women, strafing his rifle left to right. A coroner's report indicates that the man shot approximately 30 rounds in the classroom, hitting all nine women, six of whom were fatalities. Natalie Provost was hit three times but survived her wounds. More on Natalie later. The six women murdered in room C230.4 were all mechanical engineering students. They were... Annie St. Arnaud, 23, Hélène Colgan, 
23, Natalie Croteau, 23, Barbara Dagno, 22, Anne-Marie LeMay, 22, and Sonia Pelletier, who was 28 at the time. While several of the classmates in the hallway ran to seek help, the remaining males who'd been ordered from the room waited outside, terrified, listening to the gunshots and screams of their fellow students. After the shooting stopped, the gunman nonchalantly came out of the door into the corridor, pointing his weapon at the waiting male students as a warning. He didn't fire. The gunman, however, continued his violent spree in the hallway. He first shot at students in a photocopier room, injuring a male and a female student. As he moved closer, he wounded another. The man then attempted to shoot a female student in room C228, but his gun didn't fire. The man made his way into an emergency stairwell, presumably to fix his firearm. A male student using the stairwell came face to face with the gunman, even bumping into him. The student heard him say, Oh shit, I'm out of bullets. But it didn't register at first what was happening. He didn't see the gun initially. After the student exited the stairwell, he saw three people lying on the floor bleeding in the copier room. The student turned back toward the man in the stairwell, and that's when he noticed the man had a gun, which he had just finished reloading. The man raised his rifle, and the student fled, taking the nearby escalator down to the cafeteria on the first floor. As he fled, the student heard a gunshot behind him. He was unclear whether the gunman was firing on him. Regardless, he was not physically harmed. The first 911 call came at 5.12 p.m., two minutes after the whole thing began. It was from a student. Over the next three minutes, the student told the operator that there was a gunman at the school, that the male and female students had been separated in one classroom, and the females had been shot. The operator was able to hear gunfire and moaning of wounded people as the student recounted the harrowing details. Several other calls came in from the school almost immediately after the first caller, mirroring what that caller had initially reported. Police were dispatched. The gunman strode past the three wounded people near the copier room and returned to room C-228, his rifle now reloaded. He found the door was locked. Frustrated, the man fired three shots into the door and turned to walk away. As he made his way into the foyer, a female student coming off the escalator caught the gunman's eye and he fired on her. Although he had wounded her and she initially fell to the floor, she was able to get to her feet and fled up to the fifth floor, where she hid. Once in the foyer, the gunman found a person hiding behind the reception counter. The gunman again changed his rifle's magazine and fired on the terrified person crouching behind the counter. He missed. He moved forward, coming within two and a half meters of the person, and fired again, missing for a second time. Rather than fire a third time, the gunman turned and walked away, presumably looking for another victim. When he was approximately seven meters away from room B-218, the financial services office, the gunman saw another woman who spotted him at the same time. The gunman ran toward the open door. Maurice Langanier, a 25-year-old clerk in Ecole Polytechnic's finance department, moved to close the door and locked it before the gunman arrived. However, the gunman put his high-powered rifle against the window and shot through it, fatally wounding Maurice as she ran away from the door. It was somewhere between 5.15 and 5.20 p.m. when the gunman made his way down the escalator toward the school's cafeteria as outside, first responders began arriving, including police and ambulances. 
They began setting up a security perimeter and considered their plan to deal with the ongoing situation. Precious time ticked by, and the first responders did not enter the school until 20 minutes after they'd first arrived. Matthew, do by you then, it was too late for the women in the gunman's past. And what were your thoughts as more details came out? I was in college at the time. It's not like one of those, where were you when Kennedy right. was shot or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly where I was, but I, I remember I was in college, uh, as were f- my friends, and you know we were all essentially the same age as these 14 women. Mm-hmm. As I was, yeah. We were all in school, and, and all of my female friends were in universities across the country. So this was, this was very big for all of us. Mm-hmm. Back then, there was no social media, and so the details sort of came out evening newscasts by morning paper over a number of days. And as you learn more, it just got worse and worse and worse. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think, I think we have to remember as well that this this was a decade before Columbine in the USA, right? Mm-hmm. So we didn't have a la- we didn't even have a language for this. So it. it at the time for us, it was unimaginably shocking mm-hmm. uh, in a way that sadly, I, I think maybe it wouldn't be now, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, like can, Canada changed that day. And it's it really is one of the, these pivotal events in our history. It was so serious until April 2020, when the Nova Scotia shooting happened, this one had the highest number of deaths in Canadian history. It was, and because of the fact that he separated the women to do it specifically, mm-hmm. sort of even, you know, increased that sort of uh, yeah. um, un- unimaginability of it all. Right. There wasn't even the term school shooting or thoughts and prayers, like all of this, like this pre- predates all of that, right? Right. The majority of the media at the time wasn't calling this what it really was uh, and it's something that i felt at the time and and that was a terrorist act against women's progression against feminism right there was some debate uh but it was kind of fake debate it was it was almost like society wanted just to chalk it up as you know quote a crazed gunman right who happened to have killed women or the other perspective was you know he quote you know had a problem with women right mm-hmm. well if you if you'd had a problem with women he could have gone to a nursing school or a primary teacher's school but no he went to a school where women were studying engineering and it, i think that was symbolically significant it's it's yep. like it was like he was saying how d- dare you study to do a man's job mm-hmm. and it's one of these things like i don't know if i could have put it into words but nobody really wanted to tackle what this was about and what it mm-hmm. was and that was a terrorist act and i, I think in part because I had a handful of young women who were very close friends who were, unlike so many at the time, actually considered themselves feminists as well. So mm-hmm. I, got, I got those perspectives from my female friends at the time. Yeah. The shooting had started in another part of the school. But a fleeing survivor running through the cafeteria explained quickly what had happened, and almost all of the hundred students who'd been in the room at the time had fled. However, there were a few who arrived later. The gunman entered the cafeteria at 5.20 p.m. He shot one person, wounding them. Another couple, a male and female student hiding under one of the tables, were confronted by the man with the gun. He told them if they didn't want to get shot, they should leave right away, which they did. He let them go unharmed. 
It isn't clear why. Barbara Kluznik Widijevitz, 31, a nursing student, was the next to die. The gunman shot her near the kitchen as she stood in line for food. He wounded another student with his volley and the remaining students scattered. The killer then entered the Polly party room at the rear end of the cafeteria. Inside, he found Anne-Marie Edward, a 21-year-old chemical engineering student, and civil engineering student Jean-Vierre Bergeron, also 21, hiding in an unlocked storage closet. He leveled his rifle at the two women and killed them both. Survivors of the ordeal later said it appeared the gunman was smiling coldly as he went about his grim business. The gunman left the cafeteria and returned to the escalator, taking it up to the third floor. He fired at three people, two men and a woman, in the corridor before entering another classroom, B-311. There, a class of 26 students and two professors continued class. They had no idea that anything was going on until the gunman entered the room at 5.25 p.m. Professor Jean-Paul Bellon's mechanical and thermal characterization of materials class was listening to end-of-term student presentations. Three students were on the raised stage at the front of the room, including Maurice Leclerc, a 23-year-old materials engineering student. The gunman screamed for the men to get out. Once again, nobody moved. They all just sat there. Again, some said they thought it was a prank that the gun looked like a toy. The gunman shot and wounded Maurice to make his point. As she dropped to the ground, the room descended into pandemonium as people ducked for cover or scrambled to escape. The gunman quickly turned towards students who were trying to flee. Materials engineering students Michelle Richard, 21, and Maude Haviernik, 29, had been sitting in the front row when the shooting started in room B-311. They tried to escape. Both fell dead as the gunman cut them down. The killer stalked through the room, ignoring the men and shooting the women. Three more female students were wounded. Annie Turcott, a 20-year-old materials engineering student, was killed. The gunman returned to the front of the room and reloaded his firearm once again. There, he took out his hunting knife with a six-inch blade and stabbed Maurice Leclerc three times as she lay moaning. She finally succumbed. The gunman set down his knife and two boxes of bullets, took off his coat and cap, and sat on the floor. His last words before shooting himself in the head and ending his life were, oh shit. At the end of the ordeal, the man had taken the lives of 14 women and wounded 10 more, and three men were also injured. Many more had psychological wounds that have haunted them ever since. The country mourned. Politicians responded with expressions of grief and calls for action. The Prime Minister of Canada at the time, Brian Mulroney, expressed his deep sorrow and emphasized the need to prevent such tragedies in the future. Provincial leaders, including Robert Bourassa, the Premier of Quebec, also voiced their condolences and support. There was a strong emphasis on reassessing gun laws and addressing issues of gender-based violence. Across the country, there was a wave of vigils, memorials, and tributes to honor the victims. The tragedy led to deeper discussions on gender equality and women's rights, prompting advocacy and changes in policy. Educational institutions, feminist groups, and the general public rallied to commemorate the victims and demand change. The female students who died that day were all hard-working women who had their promising lives cut short by the 25-year-old gunman. 
Rather than get into his backstory, let's remember them. Brief biographies of each appear in José Boileau's book Because They Were Women. We'll do our best to paraphrase each here. Annie St. Arnaud. She was considering joining her brother, a missionary in Africa, for community projects, but had also been offered a job at the Alcan Smelters in Saguenay. Inspired by her brother, she contemplated combining humanitarian work with science. Close friend Sonia Beauregard, who had known Annie since they were four, remembered her as a uniquely curious and thoughtful individual. Annie stood out for her creative approach to projects since childhood, such as a unique presentation on the horizon and her meticulous approach to art projects. She was an artist and a poet who participated in symphonies and theater, showing a deep commitment to environmental issues. Science was Annie's passion. She was often ahead of her peers in understanding and was the only girl in her high school science club. Choosing mechanical engineering at Polytechnic was a natural fit for her, driven by a desire to interact with and improve the environment. Described as expressive, kind, and altruistic, Annie's idealism and belief in the goodness of people were central to her character. Natalie Croteau, a standout from Broussard, a Montreal suburb, was known for her determination and academic excellence. In the 1980s, it was uncommon for girls to pursue engineering, but Natalie was undeterred. She was sociable, enterprising, and involved in various activities like air cadets and school events. Natalie's passion for science branded her as a nerd, a label she embraced without hesitation. At École Secondaire Antoine Brossard, she excelled in her studies and participated in Genie en Herbe, a competitive academic TV show. Natalie's ambition led her to Polytechnique, where she was unfazed by being one of the few women in a male-dominated environment. She was passionate about learning and always ready to help others, valuing education as a means to understand and achieve. Natalie was just one semester away from completing her mechanical engineering degree in December 1989. After years of hard work, she had planned a celebratory trip to Mexico with friends, including Helene Colgan. However, the tragic events of December 6th changed everything, as both Natalie and Helene were victims of the massacre. Helene Colgan was known for her dedication to her studies, a shift from her more social life in high school. At university, she became entirely focused on her goal of becoming an engineer to make a positive impact on the world. Remembered for her humor and intelligence, Elaine was a well-rounded individual who balanced academic excellence with a lively personality. Elaine's aspirations in engineering were clear, and she was on her way to completing her undergraduate studies with plans for a master's degree. She had already received job offers, including one in Toronto. Described by her mother as an implicit feminist, Elaine was looking forward to a post-semester break planning her trip to Mexico with Natalie Croteau. They were scheduled to fly out on December 29th. Barbara Dagnall was born in Great Britain on March 2, 1967, during her father Pierre-Hélène Dagnall's studies at Birmingham University. After moving to Quebec as an infant, Barbara grew up influenced by her father's engineering background and her mother's advocacy for women's advancement. Barbara pursued science at Collège des Bois de Boulogne and later attended École Polytechnique drawn to mechanical engineering. 
She worked with her father at ETS training systems in his lab while also exploring her passion for music. Having learned piano and violin in her early years, she switched to double bass in Montreal and took singing lessons. Living with her brother, Jean-Christophe, in Montreal, Barbara balanced her studies with a quieter personal life, dating an engineering student named Eric Alexis. At 22, she was on a promising mechanical engineering path and in love. Anne-Marie Edward was a first-year polytechnic student and balanced her studies with a passion for outdoor sports and activities. Born in 1968, she grew up enjoying whitewater kayaking, survival camping, rock climbing, and horse riding. She was also an adept sailor, loving stormy weather and challenges. Anne-Marie shared a close bond with her brother Jim, her partner in numerous adventures. She was multilingual, speaking French, English, and Spanish, and learning German for a student exchange. At John Abbott College, Anne-Marie engaged in various extracurricular activities like kayaking, mountaineering, and soccer, while also volunteering with disabled youth. She was musically talented, playing piano and guitar, and even designed and sewed her own dress. Anne-Marie began at École Polytechnique focusing on chemical engineering inspired by her summer jobs at Monsanto, Canada. Her birthday that October was a celebration of a life full of promise and adventure. Promise unfulfilled. Geneviève Bergeron, a bright and charismatic student, attended a Montreal arts-focused public school with her sister Catherine. She excelled in both the arts and academics, as well as in clarinet and singing. However, Geneviève chose to pursue sciences, particularly engineering, for its stability despite her artistic inclinations and achievements. She enrolled in science at College de Bois de Boulogne, diverging from her sister's path for the first time. Later, she was accepted into Polytechnique, initially focusing on civil engineering before switching to mechanical engineering. Her father, a talented architect, and her mother, Thérèse Deviau, a prominent Montreal lawyer and politician, were incredibly proud of her. For Geneviève, who grew up in a family supporting women breaking barriers, the male-dominated engineering world was not a deterrent. In December 1989, at 21, Geneviève was a dedicated student sharing an apartment with her best friend Miriam. She remained cheerful and friendly, embodying her father's belief that the world was hers. Maud Haviernik, at 29, was older than most of her undergraduate peers at Polytechnique, having followed a non-traditional path. An artist at heart, particularly fond of sculpting, she first pursued interior design at a Montreal school, followed by environmental design at another. Maud and her future spouse, Serge Gagnon, created a space for her artistic endeavors in their Laval home. After realizing her diploma limited her career progression, Maud decided to pursue engineering at Polytechnic to gain decision-making power in her projects. This required taking some other science classes, a field she had not previously explored. With support from her family and her own determination, Maud juggled work and studies, often studying at her mother's house to ease stress. Maud chose materials engineering as her specialization and was in her third year during the fall semester of 1989. Despite the pressure of impending exams, she was prepared to present her project in her professor's class that day. Barbara Maria Kluznik-Widajewicz, 
was a nursing student at the University of Montreal, having already earned a master's in engineering in Poland. Active in the Solidarność movement against Poland's communist regime, she and her husband Witold fled to Montreal in 1987. In Canada, Barbara Marie pursued nursing, excelling academically and receiving an excellence grant. The couple was politically engaged and enjoyed Montreal's student life, but couldn't return to Poland, missing significant family events. Barbara Maria, fluent in multiple languages, was adapting well to her new life. She and Withold often met at the Ecole Polytechnic cafeteria due to their busy schedules. On December 6, 1989, the couple was in line at the cafeteria when the shooting began. Withold was swept away in the ensuing chaos unaware of his wife's fate until later. Marie's Langanier worked as a secretary in the financial services department at Ecole Polytechnic. She wasn't much older than the students. Born in 1964 in Grandin, she was the youngest of 13 children. After studying computer science, she joined Polytechnic and met her future husband, Jean-Francois Larive, Jeff, in 1986. Their romance blossomed starting with a movie date and leading to them moving in together in 1987. It was a significant step in Quebec at the time. The couple married in August 1989 and enjoyed a honeymoon in Punta Cana. Known for her expressive smile and ability to communicate deeply with her husband, Marie's enjoyed needlework and decorating their home. The couple hoped to start a family and tragically, at the time of her death, Marie's had told Jeff she thought she was pregnant. Marie's Leclerc, known for her rebellious nature and determination, grew up resisting classic gender norms. Interested in space and exploration from a young age, she showcased strong leadership skills in the Girl Guides program. After leaving a strict high school due to its uniform and discipline, Marie's attended a more progressive school in Laval, embracing the British punk and Montreal New Wave scenes. Marie's, who enjoyed sewing and creating her own clothes, also excelled in sports like handball and skiing. Her adventurous spirit led her to a summer at a Canadian military training camp, which she left early due to its rigidity. Dissatisfied with her initial choice of at an advertising school, she switched to materials engineering at Polytechnique. Marie's worked several jobs to support herself and had a significant relationship with Benoit, a fellow Polytechnique student. Known for her spontaneity and disregard for others' opinions, Marie's drove a graffiti-covered Honda Civic, reflecting her unique personality. She was eagerly preparing for a project presentation at school on the day of the tragic massacre. Anne-Marie LeMay's journey to engineering stemmed from her desire to aid people with disabilities influenced by her experience helping a disabled friend. She grew up in Boucherville and chose Collège de Maisonneuve for her early studies, initially considering medicine but ultimately selecting engineering at Polytechnic due to her grades. At Polytechnic, Anne-Marie's sociable nature and preference for teamwork and collaboration were well suited to the field of mechanical engineering, her chosen specialty. She also maintained her passion for singing, participating in a choir with friends, and being influenced by her father's involvement in the theater. Anne-Marie displayed her pioneering spirit by working at a speedy muffler branch, being the first woman to do so. Her summer internship at Cascades Technologies affirmed her engineering path. She demonstrated leadership in organizing graduation photo sessions 
and was in a relationship with Laurent, a fellow engineering student who survived the attack. Sonia Pelletier hailed from the small village of St. Ulrich in Gaspésie, excelling in her studies from a young age and becoming a source of pride for her family and community. She was known for her exceptional intellect and energy, remembered fondly as a memorable and exceptional person. After obtaining a DEC in architectural technology in Ramuski, where she met her friend Sylvie Harrison, Sonia pursued additional classes to enroll at École Polytechnique. In Montreal, she lived with Sylvie and Danny, Sylvie's sister, focusing intensely on her studies in mechanical engineering. She received an excellence award from Polytechnic and was known for her cooking skills, particularly enjoying making homemade pasta. Sonia's dedication to her studies led her to the end of her final semester with her last classes, concluding on December 5, 1989. With a job already secured, her graduation was imminent. Out of respect for her classmates, she attended the final presentations on December 6, 1989 in classroom C230.4, where she was among the nine women who were shot in that room. Michelle Richard from Lac Megantique was renowned for her impactful contributions, notably co-founding Maison des Jeunes de Megantique. Known for her leadership and musical talents, she played trumpet in the Cadets Corps and participated in a significant student exchange to Alberta, fostering strong bonds with friends there. After moving to Montreal in the mid-1980s, Michelle remained closely connected to her roots in Lac Megantique frequently returning and contemplating buying land there. Cherished by family and friends for her warmth and zest for life, she pursued engineering with determination, enrolling in the metallurgical engineering program at Polytechnique. In a serious relationship with Stéphane since 1986, Michelle was known for her adaptability and deep love, which was evident when she joined him on a fishing trip to Bay James. Tragically, at 21, Michelle's promising life and plans for future engagement were abruptly ended, leaving a legacy of warmth, intelligence, and a passion for making a difference. 21-year-old Annie Turcott, a materials engineering student at Ecole Polytechnic, was known for her fun-loving and cheerful personality. Living with her brother Christian in Montreal, she balanced her academic focus on nature and environment with a strong sense of community and unity, suggesting a potential for future in politics and diplomacy. She excelled in academics and swimming in Granby and was also profoundly generous teaching swimming to disabled youth and children at her family's motel. Annie's adventurous spirit shone through in activities like fixing her car's leaking gas tank and joining her brother Donald on a challenging bike trip through Gaspésie despite her lack of cycling experience. On the eve of December 6, after a physics study session with Donald, she looked forward to continuing her demanding engineering studies, demonstrating her dedication and resilience. I waffled on whether or not I should name the perpetrator in this case and weighed out the pros and cons of doing so. I did a bit of homework on this. The pros of naming the perpetrator are historical accuracy including the name, can be seen as a matter of factual reporting, maintaining the historical accuracy of the event. Contextual understanding. Knowing the perpetrator can provide listeners with a more comprehensive understanding of the incident, including the background and possible motives. We can talk about those without naming him. 
Educational value. In a broader educational context, such as discussions about gun violence or misogyny, mentioning the name can serve as a case study or point of reference. Again, you don't need to name them. So the cons of naming the perpetrator are notoriety and infamy. Naming the gunman can contribute to the notoriety they sought, potentially inspiring others who might see violence as a way to gain attention or infamy. Retraumatization. For survivors, family members of the victims, and the community, hearing the name of that person can be re-traumatizing and painful. Diverting focus. This is a big one. Focusing on the perpetrator can shift attention away from the victims and broader issues the event raises, such as gender-based violence and gun control. Copycat crimes. We've seen this a lot. There is a concern that giving attention to the perpetrator could inspire similar actions by others seeking similar notoriety or to align themselves with the perpetrator's cause or actions. So, as I mentioned at the outset, I've chosen not to name this guy. The gunman was the son of a French-Canadian mother and an Algerian father. His father, who belittled women, was abusive and separated from the family when the perpetrator was just seven. After experiencing a tough childhood, the perpetrator later adopted his mother's surname, rejecting his father's legacy. He tried unsuccessfully to join the Canadian Army, being deemed antisocial. He was known for disliking feminists and women in male-dominated fields and initially pursued sciences before switching to electronics, which he eventually dropped out of. He applied twice to École Polytechnique but was missing necessary courses, completing one shortly before the massacre. He'd most likely have been labeled an incel today. He left a rambling suicide note justifying his actions. But reading it here, again, serves no good purpose. You can Google it if you're so inclined, along with his name. His mother later wrote a book about the tragedy, but that's currently out of print. So I have a note on this note. Um, okay. It wasn't released or published for a really long time. Mm. And some people, and I'm one of them, wonder that if it was made public immediately back then... Could we as a nation have faced up to the fact that this wasn't just a random crazed gunman, right? But it was this terrorist act against women and feminism, which I believe it was. Um, you know, if you read the note, it, it's clear it's a, it was a politically motivated crime against a specific gender. It was terrorism. Right. And, and I wonder, you know, would we have been more successful in under, understanding the underlying reasons and prepared society for a, a little bit more for this whole incel movement that happens, you know? Yeah. The tragedy of the Ecole Polytechnic massacre on December 6, 1989, led to significant changes in gun control laws in Canada, especially as the gunman had obtained his firearm legally. In response to this event, the Coalition for Gun Control was established, and their efforts were instrumental in the adoption of Bill C-68 in November 1995. This federal firearm control legislation introduced several significant measures, including mandatory registration of all firearms, licensing for firearm owners, the establishment of a national registry for all weapons, background checks and verification processes for firearm owners, and controls on ammunition sale. The victims of the Ecole Polytechnic Massacre have been memorialized in several meaningful ways, both through physical memorials and annual events that serve as reminders of the tragedy and its impact. 
For example, there's the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. In Canada, December 6 is marked as the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. This day was established in 1991 by the Parliament of Canada to remember the victims of the massacre and to advocate for action against gender-based violence. As far as physical memorials go, there are many. In Montreal, a plaque bearing the names of the 14 victims was placed at the entrance of École Polytechnique. Additionally, a memorial called Place du 6 de Décembre 1989 was created in 1999. This site includes a work of art titled Nef pour Quatorze Reines, Nave for 14 Queens, by Rose-Marie Goulet. There's a plaque at Parliament Hill in Ottawa, and various universities and institutions across Canada have established scholarships, bursaries, and memorials in honour of the victims. Each year, vigils and commemorative events are held across Canada on December 6. These events include moments of silence, the reading of victims' names, and the lighting of candles. They are attended by students, faculty, politicians, and community members to honour the victims and raise awareness about violence against women. Initiated in 1991, the White Ribbon Campaign is a movement where men wear white ribbons as a pledge to never commit, condone, or remain silent about violence against women and girls. This campaign is particularly active around the anniversary of the massacre. Educational programs and initiatives have been established in schools and universities to promote awareness about gender-based violence and the importance of gender equality in STEM fields. Many of the survivors, like Natalie Provost, went on to do great things. According to the site 30yearslater.ca, Natalie has built a notable career in Quebec's public service after completing her bachelor's and master's degrees at Polytechnic Montreal. She has held key positions including executive director roles at the Ministry of Immigration and the Ministry of the Environment, where she was instrumental in various strategic projects and organizational transformations. Beyond her professional achievements, Provost is a prominent advocate for gun control in Canada and has been involved with the Coalition for Gun Control and other notable organizations. Her experience as a survivor makes her a credible voice on the subject and she actively uses media platforms to promote her convictions. Provost also supports the next generation of female engineers as the godmother of Polytechnic's Order of the White Rose Scholarship, an annual scholarship for excellence in engineering awarded to a female Canadian student who will pursue graduate studies in Canada or elsewhere in the world. Recognized for her bravery and resilience, she received Canada's Medal of Bravery and returned to Polytechnic just a month after the massacre to complete her studies. She was the first woman on Polytechnic's board of directors and balances her career with being a mother of four, exemplifying strength, determination, and ethics. That site, 30yearslater.ca, points out how Natalie and many other survivors who were there that day are wonderful examples of potential realized. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 296, Extreme Misogyny, The Montreal Massacre. So we'll have some ads here and we'll lighten things up a little bit with some voicemails and some Patreon and Donut Money donor shoutouts. That's right, it's time for voicemails. 
you can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Here is our first voicemail. Hey, I have been a dark poutine listener from the beginning. My name is Melissa. I am actually a registered nurse from Saskatoon. But a while back, you asked people to call in on momentous occasions. And this happens to be my very first trip to Vancouver as an adult. And I'm staying in Yale Town, so it seemed appropriate to phone. Anyway, keep up the good work. Love your show. And, yeah, I'm not going to tell you to go sh- take a shit in your hat, but I am going to take you- tell you <laughs> to take care of yourselves. Hey, see ya. Bye. Thank you. Oh, she She's in my hood. Registered nurse. What? In my hood. Love me a registered nurse. You people are so overworked. And underpaid, holy smoke! <laughs> I, I can't even I, I can't even fathom how they do what they I, do. I think you guys are sucker for punishment. It must be uh, something like that. I, they like, love people so much they want to do the job, and then they get I there, know. and it's just they're hosed by the they, system. They're they're hosed. That's such a Canadian. Word. Yeah, they're hosed by the system. But no, important. So thank you. Uh, and welcome to my neighborhood. Yeah, maybe she see ran Steve. into you and Steve some at some point walking along. Maybe she'll see us. Maybe. Yeah. Hey, it's Helen Walker calling from good old Swa in Ontario. Uh, I love your show. And it's really, really funny when you guys are doing the Halloween special. I get all excited. And then... You guys what throw the? in a wrench that, oh, this happened scientific stuff, and I'm like, ah, damn. Anyways, go sit in your hat. Have a great day. <laughs> I love it. I love it when people call from work. Well, they call from work, <laughs> or, or maybe somebody was shooting at somebody behind her. I don't know. I don't know. She just didn't seem to care. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your, thank you for your call. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that was funny. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, we like doing the special episodes, like the Halloween episodes and uh, that kind of thing, because it cleanses the palate after doing such, you know, dark things that we sometimes do. It's it's a little amuse boost. Yes, exactly. Uh, Let's go on to our last voicemail. Voicemail number three, I have it labeled here. Hi, Mike and Matthew from Repreo Blue Noser. (laughs) I just wanted to give you guys a shout. I have been getting caught up on the last few months' worth of episodes as I was kind of in a funk this fall. I just finished the Leo Major episode, and wow, what a remarkable Canadian. I have a soft spot for vets. My great-uncle was a World War II vet, and we had some great local vets in this area who have all unfortunately passed on. I just wanted to say how much I appreciate the show, and you guys have a certain way about just how you tell these stories. Your compassion and the care you take with each story is profound. I keep returning even when I take breaks from different social media and podcasts. But I always come back to you guys, and you're always the first one I tune into. It's also interesting because I also tend to be more center-aligned towards my views. But I just appreciate how you, you guys approach stuff, and you give people pause to think. 
and be more open-minded on things. I have definitely changed my outlook on different positions because of you guys. And I just want to say, keep doing what you're doing. And just to add a little Nova Scotia flair, go take a dump in your Southwester. <laughs> have a nice day. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I love it. Thank like I've you. said many times before, I love it when uh, my my fellow blue nosers call up and and you know give us a shout. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, it's it's interesting. I love it when people can say that hey, they've learned something or they've changed a perspective. Mm -hmm. And you know, we've had this conversation before. I think um, you know she you know suggested there she she's more center. Sort of sure. thing politically. Yep. Um, I think it's because you and I are quite different in some perspectives. So I think it kind of balances. It a little does. Bit. Yeah. 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 It's, it's kind of, it's good. You know, I've heard enough podcasts where the, the hosts absolutely agree with each other all the time. Uh, and then I, there's the converse where I've, I've listened to podcasts where the hosts <laughs> actually yell at each other. For a large amount of the... Of and I, I only call you a commie um, when we're not recording. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I am not a commie. I am in no way Pinko a commie. Pinko commie bastard. Yeah, yeah. No, I am not a communist. <laughs> Wait, to me, you might as well be, Mike. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, like, well, then your, your bar for communism is very low. But oh. I love you anyway. <laughs> what? Oh, you just froze for a sec. I love you anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, that's it for voicemails. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 827 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. It's time for Donut Money Donors and Patreon shoutouts, and we don't have any patrons new this week. However, we do have a Donut Money Donor shoutout, and it's from another podcast. It is Bernadette from the Murderific True Crime podcast, and she says, Thank you for being one of the best podcasts out there. Well, Bernadette, I haven't listened to your show. I should probably go ahead and do it. But it looks like they have eight seasons and 78 episodes wow. worth of stuff. And they talk. Proper. Yeah, it's, yeah, <laughs> they talk about a lot of things. Um, holy smokes. Yeah. And they've had uh, other podcasts doing crossovers and those kind of things. So, hmm. Hmm. Murderific. 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 Yeah. Check them out. Um, I think I will give that a listen to them. The Murderific True Crime Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Thanks, Bernadette. <laughs> Thanks, Bernadette. Awesome. I wanted to call her. I wanted to call her Bernie, but I don't know if she. She, she may not. She may not. But she, Bernadette is in Lisbon Falls, Lisbon Falls, and it looks like Maine. In the United hmm. States. And so what does Bernadette do there other than podcasting? Does she have any hobbies or does she have a full-time gig? I am going to do the same one for everyone today. Okay. And I'm going to say Bernadette, as a woman, mm -hmm. can do any job she right. wants to. She can. Any job. Yep. Any job. For the same amount of money as a man gets. 
or more yep. if you're more qualified. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm just I'm sticking with that today because I think uh, yeah, it's it's relevant. Yeah. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at Patreon.com/DarkPoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And if you've made it this far into this show... We just want to say thank you, and don't forget to be a good egg, which we know you all are, really, and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Bye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.